We're going to turn now to God's Word. Uh, we're continuing our study through 1 Samuel, and uh, just 1 Samuel, the early parts of 1 Samuel talk about a period in ancient Israel when there was a transition in the leadership from uh, the priest named Levi to uh, the prophet Samuel. And we are right in the middle of that transition in the chapters that we've been looking at the last uh, few weeks. And uh, if you were here last week, the story told us about the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites when uh, Eli's sons were killed, Eli died, and then the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And so uh, we're picking up right in the middle of that story. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 5, the whole chapter together, and you can follow along right there in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the people of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they uh, brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to, to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that you would take these words from your holy scriptures. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would um, press them into our lives, to our hearts, into our minds. And lead us to our Savior, Jesus, that we might uh, believe in him, trust in him, and obey him. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, today, we're looking at the story of the Lord's 
confrontation uh, with the Philistine god uh, Dagon. And this passage uh, may uh, seem very primitive uh, to us, the ancient people group uh, uh, this ancient group, people group worshipped this idol, this statue. And we think, you know, people don't really do that anymore. Um, but idolatry, which is the worship of false gods, is basically the default of the human heart. And therefore, it's one of the most natural things, not just for this ancient people group, but it's, it's equally as the default for us as modern people. And actually, this past week, our, uh, our pastors went to our, our regional gathering of our denomination of pastors called Presbyterians down in Oregon, where all these pastors gather for two days. And one of the things that we do in these gatherings is people who want to become pastors uh, become interns and candidates with the Presbyterian. They get up in front of the Presbyterian and they talk about how they became Christians and why they want to be a pastor. And one of the guys who stood up uh, just a couple of days ago, he's this big, tall guy. He's like six seven. He's a basketball player, played for the University of Washington. And, uh, and he was talking about how he'd grown up in the church and yet, as he had gone through, you know, his uh, Division I basketball, and uh, he had grown up with this image of himself, that he was the one who does everything right. And so he projected to everyone this picture of, I'm the one who does everything right. And he was the real him that was underneath this image, was getting crushed by the burden of trying to put on this show of who he was. And he said that it wasn't until the Lord tore down his idols. That's what his language was. It wasn't until the Lord tore down his idols that he really learned of the deep love of Jesus for who he really was. And that's why he wanted to give his life to, to you know, serving the Lord and, and serving the gospel. And it struck me that here we are in the Pacific Northwest in 2021, in the modern world, and this guy says that this, the turning point in his spiritual life was the Lord tearing down his idols, which is exactly what we read about in this passage in, in 1 Samuel 5, is the Lord tearing down the idol in the 11th century B.C. In, among the Philistines. We realize that humanity has not changed. And that the way that the Lord works in people's lives is he tears down their idols so that he can teach them about who the one true and living God is to teach us about his holiness, his justice, his truth, his love. And that we might turn and worship him alone because that's what we were made for. And so this morning we are going to talk about idolatry, the worship of false gods, which is something that didn't just happen in the ancient world. It's something that happened, is alive and well in the modern world today. And uh, I'd like to answer three questions for us from this passage about idolatry. This is what they are. First, what is idolatry? Second, what are the effects of idolatry? And third, how does God deal with our idols? What is idolatry? What are the effects of idolatry upon us? And how does God then deal with our idols? And I hope that we see that as primitive as this passage seems to us, it speaks deeply into, into our lives and uh, the default of the human heart to chase after false gods. So, so three questions for us today. And the first is this, what is idolatry. And there are two answers that I'd like to point out from this passage. And the first answer is that idolatry is making creation into a God. Idolatry is making creation into a God. And you see how uh, this passage begins in verse 1. Now it says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon. 
Now, Dagon was one of the Philistines' primary gods, and we don't know much about Dagon. We do know that Dagon was worshipped for at least 1,500 years in the, in, the, uh, in the ancient world, going way back into Mesopotamia. And uh, the, the name Dagon is closely related to the Hebrew words for, for corn or grain. And, uh, and so it's thought that he's connected to vegetation or, you know, the grain or the crops. And he's the god who gives the produce that enabled these people to live. And, uh, and this is what I mean, that idolatry is making creation into a God. It's taking something good like the earth and vegetation that gives us life that is a gift from God that should cause us to thank God. Instead, they make the gift itself a God and worship it. And instead of worshiping the giver, they, they worship the gift. And, and one of the most important places in the Bible that talks about idolatry is Romans chapter 1. And Romans chapter 1 gives this picture of the human race throughout history and all the nations in the darkness of humanity's heart. And this is the way the Apostle Paul says it. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see how he describes uh, what idolatry is. It's an exchanging of the glory of God for these images of, from creation of men and birds and, and creeping things. It's taking the creation and making it the object of worship and making it God. And by the way, you know, if you were here last week, um, we talked about how the Ark of the Covenant that's talked about in this passage is described as the glory and so here is the glory of God being placed next to this image, Dagon. So it's exactly a picture of what Romans 1 is talking about. And the foolishness of humanity is happening here in 1 Samuel 5, that the glory of God is set next to this image of, uh, of Dagon. So first, uh, what is idolatry? It's, it's making any part of God's creation into an object of our worship. But there's a second aspect of idolatry that we see in this passage that not only is idolatry making creation into a god, but it's also making God into a servant. So it's, it's making creation into a god, but it's also taking God and bringing him down and making him into a servant. And we try to use God to serve our idols. So you notice again in, in verse 2 how it says, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it beside Dagon. Now what's happening here is the, the Philistines had just had this battle with the Israelites. And what, the, how, what they imagined was happening was that their god, Dagon, was fighting the Israelites' god, who is Yahweh. And that Dagon had defeated him. And so Dagon brought the king of the Israelites, Yahweh, and brought him into his house. And he set him right next to, uh, to Dagon and said, you're going to be my servant. You're going to be my attendant. You're going to be my errand boy. So the Lord of hosts is going to become the servant of this idol. And so what this means is these Philistines knew that the Lord was real. They knew his power. They knew, and they said in the last chapter that he had defeated the Israelites and that he, you know, or sorry, defeated the Egyptians when they had uh, brought Israel out of slavery. But instead of worshiping and honoring him, they wanted to use him for their own idols, their own false worship. What that means is that idolatry is not only a temptation for pagans. Christians can know that God is real in his power and, and say mainly that they want to use God to really serve what they care about. So if you've ever approached God, for example, thinking, okay, what I really want is to get married. 
or I really want to get a great job, and I want to be successful. And so I'm going to do whatever God wants. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do all these things because I know he's powerful, and he's going to give me the things that I want. What are you doing? Marriage or success is your Dagon, and you're taking the Lord of hosts, and you're putting him as a little attendant to your God who's going to use his power to serve what you really want. And that's what uh, what you're not saying is, Lord, I worship you no matter what is pleasing to you. And so this means that idolatry is a temptation to Christians. Actually, the the book of 1 John, a letter written to Christian churches, ends by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so how do you know what your potential idols are? The things in the creation that you might love or serve or be devoted to more than the Lord or you use the Lord to get these other things? Well, here are a few diagnostic questions for you. First question is, what does your mind most naturally flow to? When your mind is free to think about anything, what is the thing that is, occupies your mind? Is it sex or romance? Is it work? Is it your job? Is it success? Is it politics? Is it a hobby or a sport? Is it money? Is it possessions? What is the thing that your mind is constantly flowing to? Or what does your time naturally flow to? You know, when you think about your schedule and you're like, this is a non-negotiable. We're doing this thing with our time. What is that thing? Why is it a non-negotiable? Why does it get such authority? Or where does your money most naturally flow? We show devotion to our gods by giving them our money. These are the real things that we look to for security or success or happiness. Those are the things that are our possible gods. And, you know, your gods are often visible. You know, you put your gods on display. Like, this is the house of Dagon. When you walked into Ashdod, the Philistine city, you saw the house of Dagon. And so our gods are often on, you can see them in your life. I know, you know, for me at times, uh, books have been, Uh, an idol for me and you know that I think of my identity and how much have I read how much have I thought about and even when we didn't have any money I was a graduate student we didn't have money for anything we had money for books and if you walked into my house what would you see on display books whatever books I had and what did I fight with my wife about I'm spending too much time reading and uh, you know the things that you're fighting about are probably your idols why are you defending them like they're a God, like they're the center of the meaning that if they were taken from you, the world would fall apart. These are all indications of what our idols are. What are the idols or potential idols in your life? And if you don't think you have them, this is one of the most important things to understand about idolatry is that everyone will worship something. It's not just that these ancient peoples, the Philistines, humans are beings that are made for worship. You will find something to be your true God that gives meaning to your life. And it will either be the true God who created you and knows you and loves you by sheer grace, or it will be a false God who will be ruthless to you. But everyone worships. And so first, what is idolatry? It's making creation into a God and making God into a servant to our idols. The second question is this. What are the effects then of idolatry? What are the effects of idolatry on our life? You know, when your life is devoted to serving idols, what does it do to you? I mean, what does it feel like? How do you experience it? 
And the, this passage is really vivid, and I want to point out two things from this passage. Is that first, it feels like slavery. When your life is devoted to an idol, it will feel like slavery. And you see in verse 3 how it says, And when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they put the ark of God next to Dagon, and the next day he's face down on the ground. So the Lord is like, no, 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 I'm not going to be your servant. You're going to bow down to me. So he throws down Dagon onto his face to bow down before the ark of the covenant. Now, if you're the Philistines and you come in and you realize your God has just been thrown down by the Lord of hosts, what should you do? Oh, that's the wrong God. We should repent and worship the true God because he's the really powerful one and we should be devoted to him. What do they do instead? Well, this is one of the great lines of this story. In the second part of verse 3, it says, So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. <laughs> and so Here's your God who can't even like stand up himself. He's just like this God is all stiff. And the people, they know he's powerless. He can't even stand up. They know he's powerless. And look at them. They're servants. They're slaves. Let me help you. Let me attend to you. Let me do whatever you need. We know that our idols are hurting us. We know that they're not powerful and they're not the true God. And yet we still serve them. And idols enslave and dehumanize you. It doesn't matter if your idol is work or weed, sex or soccer. If you make any of these things the center of your identity, it will make demands on you until it destroys you. Even when you know it is not good for you, you will obey it. And it's only in worshiping the Lord that you experience true freedom. This is a paradox. You know, the world says, chase after all your passions and desires. Be free. And what ends up happening? You become enslaved. You become addicted. You become dehumanized. And the Bible says, obey God. Become his slave. And he will set you free. Jesus says the truth will set you free. And you'll find true freedom. This is the paradox of being a human being. And so what is the effect of slavery on us? First of all, it feels like slavery. Second... It feels like heaviness. That slavery feels like a weighing down and a heaviness. And by heaviness, I mean that you'll find that your life isn't working properly. There's a resistance. You were made by God for God to worship him and live for his glory alone. And when you worship idols instead, things will not work right in your life. And you see what it says when the Philistines tried to make the Lord the servant of Dagon. What happened in verse 6? The hand of the Lord was heavy. That's the heaviness. Was heavy against the people of Ashdod. What does it mean for the hand of the Lord to be heavy on someone? Well, in this passage, we find out that they are afflicted and they break out with tumors. And then the people in Ashdod are like, ah, this thing is killing us. So they send it to the neighboring city in Gath. And then the people in Gath, it breaks out and tumors in them. And they say, let's send it to the people of Ekron and to the other cities. So these Philistine city lords are like passing the Ark of the Covenant around like it's a hot potato, you know, trying to get it away from themselves. But that expression, the hand of the Lord being heavy, appears in other places in the Bible. And, and one place is in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a psalm that describes what it's like when you have hidden sin in your life that you haven't told anyone about. 
and you're, or a hidden idol that you're not letting go of. And it describes what the experience of that is. And this is what the psalm says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This psalm is one of the great descriptions of the groaning and heaviness that come when we are chasing idols. That's what life is like. And instead of confessing our idols to the Lord. And do you know what that heaviness is like? The resistance. The things are, this isn't how I was made to live and I'm enslaved to it. And I just keep doing that. This is the effect idolatry has. It makes your life not work right. That's what uh, C.S. Lewis says. You know, he says, like, a car was made to run on fuel. If you put orange juice in the car, it's not going to run. You were made to run on the Lord. You were made to live for him. And if you try to live on an idol, your life's not going to work right. It's going to break down. And why is that? It's because created things were not meant to carry the weight of being God. So, for example, if you're, if you're married or you're in a relationship, and you, if you think your spouse is the center of your life, and you, they're like a God to you, you look to them for security and happiness and ultimately your sense of identity and who you are, they will fail you. And the marriage will break and fall apart under the weight of making an idol out of your spouse. Or you take, for example, our culture's idolatry of sex. Back in the 70s, when the porn industry was, was taking off, all kinds of conservatives said, you know, if, if there's widespread pornography, people are going to become sex crazy, and people are just going to be having more and more sex all the time. A generation later, we found that just the opposite has happened. Statistics say that people are having less sex now than they were a generation ago, because people are so oversexed that they're bored with it. And they actually, they don't even want to deal with a real person. They just deal, have pseudo-sex with a screen. We were made to enjoy sex in the lifelong committed relationships of the covenant of marriage. We were supposed to enjoy sex in obedience to God, in worship to God. Make sex an idol, and you don't only lose God, you lose sex also. These are the effects of turning anything in your life into being more important than the one who made you. We were made for God. And, we, and when we take any, anything, even a good thing in creation, like a family or our hobbies or work or sex, and make it a God, the experience will be slavery and heaviness, a resistance, and our life will not be working properly. And so that leads to our final question about idolatry is, is how does the Lord deal with our idols? How does the Lord deal with our idols? And we already answered that at the beginning of the sermon, that the, the Lord tears down our idols for our good. That's what the Lord does to idols, is he tears them down. And when God tears down your idols, it often feels like your world is being turned upside down. That's what the guy at Presbytery was saying. It was like, my world was, how I'd lived my whole upbringing was getting turned upside down. And you, uh, which makes sense, because you see in this passage how the Lord tears down the idol Dagon. In, uh, in verse 3, again, you see what it says? When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they tried to make uh, the Lord Dagon's servant. And so what does the Lord do? He turns it right side up and says, no, I am the Lord and the only one who should be worshipped. He makes Dagon bow down to him. And if you are making a part of creation your God, the only way to fix it is by turning your world upside down. 
Some of you have felt that. When your idols are tear, tore down, it makes your world feel like, I, I don't know how to operate because I've, I've learned, I've been so attached to this idol. It's the only way I know how to function is this way. That's not the only thing that the Lord does. So they put Dagon back up. They stand him back up. And then it says this in verse 4. But when they rose early the next, on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. So the, the hands were the symbol of power. And the God has cut off Dagon's hands to show he's powerless. But also... The destruction of the head of God's enemies is an important theme in, in 1 Samuel. You know, the, the most famous story in, in the book of 1 Samuel is the great battle between David and Goliath. And David defeats the Philistine giant Goliath. And after he kills him, what does he do to him? He cuts off his head. It's very similar to Dagon. It's a head being cut off here. And both those stories of God's enemies losing their heads is an echo back to the very beginning of the Bible. When the evil one first tempted us to turn from worshiping God to worshiping idols, and God made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And this was a cryptic prophecy that uh, one day the Son of God, Jesus, would be born of a woman, and he would take on the sins of all the idolaters in the history of the world who've worshiped false gods and not given him the glory that was due him. He would die for them to wash them of their idols and reconcile them to God so that they could know the one true God and be returned to how we were truly meant to be as human beings. And what the story of Dagon and Goliath and the prophecy of Genesis 3 all tell us is we can't free ourselves from our idols. We are enslaved to our idols. We need to be set free. We need a savior. We need a rescuer. And the Lord must come and tear them down for our good. And when he does, it will feel like our world is being turned upside down because idolatry is itself upside down. It's making creation into a God and God into a servant. We weren't made to live like that. It makes us slaves and dehumanizes us and feels like the heaviness of the Lord's hand upon us. And so the Lord has sent Jesus to save us from our false gods, our false worship. And to return us to the one true living God, our creator, the one who makes, made us, the one who knows us, our king, and the only one worthy of our worship. And though the undoing of our idols is painful, in him, in Jesus, we can finally have freedom. So we turn from our idols and we gather here in worship to say, Lord, we want you to be our one true God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you see the, all of the nations. You see every human heart. And you see how we are prone to wander and, and chase false, lesser gods. To not give you the love and devotion that is due your name. And so, uh, Lord, we uh, thank you that you have come down to wash us of our idols. And, Lord, we long to be free from them. Would you set us free and, and train our hearts to trust you, 
to love you, to worship you, and to obey you as the one true living God. All glory be to you alone, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.